Welcome to Human Resources, a podcast exploring some of the difficult, uplifting moments we face in the process of being a person. Each episode asks a question that seems too simple to ask, such as, are we good at making mistakes or what is a real friend? My name's Hannah Jane Walker. I'm a theatre maker and a poet, and I'm really glad that you made it here. And I hope that you enjoy this space. This podcast was funded by Arts Council England. This podcast contains language some listeners may find offensive. This is the story of how I fell out with my long-term creative partner. How can I explain to you how things ended with Chris? Well... Have you ever had an argument where you are both 150% completely convinced that you are right? Chris Thorpe and I, we made theatre together. We made quite a few shows and we were on tour together for, for, for quite a few years, having for the main part, you know, the time of our lives. And together, you know, we had the great privilege of meeting some really extraordinary and very diverse audiences. A uh, a Facebook post flashed up the other day um, that said, man, 23 shows in seven days. I think we're amongst the hardest working clowns in town. We used to joke that we spent more time together than we did with our partners or, you know, with our families. 2014, Chris and I were in London at a theatre working on on a new show. We'd been granted quite significant funding from a venue and the Arts Council. You know, it's the biggest funding we had ever had to make this new show. This new show was called Human Resources. And actually, that is the title that I've I've reappropriated as the title of this series, because I think, well, I think it's a good title and I'm attached to it and, and I don't really want it to go to waste. That show, Human Resources, the show that we were there working on, was due to premiere in Edinburgh at our favourite venue. The show was all about looking at your DNA and your family history and whether or not that should have any bearing on the story that you tell yourself about who you are. It was at this point about, about three weeks before the premiere. Quite a lot of tickets had been sold and accommodation and travel had been booked for Edinburgh and some national newspapers had even written a write-up of it in what in their what to see in Edinburgh listings. But we did not have a script, at least not one that we could agree on. And we could not rehearse because we could not speak to each other. And no one else in the room in the team could do their job well because, you know, Chris and I, we couldn't fucking speak to each other. And that is a little bit of a barrier sometimes when it comes to making a show. So I just thought I would give you a snapshot just to sort of colour in, you know, what things were like around that time. So it was lunchtime and I was sitting in the theatre cafe and it was the last day that we'd be making that show, although we did not know that at the time. And upstairs in the rehearsal room, a disagreement had just happened between Chris and me about performance style. A disagreement that, you know, like all our disagreements, was part of one huge fucking storm of disagreement by this point. This is how the conversation went. Chris, 
don't you dare ever fucking do that again. Me. Fuck off. I'm trying to eat a potato. And you know why I fucking did it. So, <laughs> that's pretty much where we'd ended up by now. And things got a lot worse than that. We were making this show a little bit differently to usual. It was a bit of a different model for us. Usually we didn't work with a big team. Usually we worked with no real lighting, no costumes. We had someone often in working as an outside eye, but I'm not sure they would have called themselves a director. But for this show, we had decided we were going to work, as I said, a little bit differently. So we had a costume designer and a lighting designer and a set designer and a director and all these people, they were in the rehearsal room with us, watching us try to get through a rehearsal. And we were being watched and watched. And we were, we were failing. And we were failing big. And they were all trying to be really nice about it. But it was clear to absolutely every single person in that room that this was a fucking car crash. And although nobody was shouting and screaming about it, Nobody was quite sure how we were going to get out or through this. It was, um, it was way more than uncomfortable. I, I actually don't really have the words to explain to you how, um, how uncomfortable that process was. Chris and me, we each also had personal life complications going on. And normally, because we spent so much time together and because we developed a friendship, we would be, you know, one of the main people supporting each other through those personal life stuff. But we were not supporting each other and we, we could not. And we had to make, we had to make the decision about what we were going to do. Whether or not we were going to push forwards to the Edinburgh Fringe with potentially a literal shit show and a pair of artists who were now wrapped in a process of emotionally tormenting each other to try and find a way to do the show together for like 30 days in Edinburgh, which, you know, is quite an ask even under the best circumstances. Or to make the almost, almost unthinkable kind of decision, which was just to, to put the whole thing down. Just to, to put the whole fucking thing down and to walk right away. And that is what we did. And I I think we had to. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But we lost a lot of money, a lot of colleagues. Damage was done to other people's careers, to our own careers. But the worst thing of all was that we lost each other. not unusual right it's not unusual for two people to disagree it's not unusual for two people to be totally convinced that they are right to reach a point of impasse and there for there to be you know fallout and collateral and that you know that happens I think pretty much across all sectors and all types of relationships if I am going to carry on using this story of Chris and me to 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 illustrate a few things I probably need to give you a few bits of sp specific detail. So for Chris and me, it boils down to two, two things, really. One, well, we're really different kinds of performers. Chris is 
he's a really highly skilled performer. He is gruff and he is so charming with an audience. Um, he has this kind of confidence and swagger and he has this thing where it's kind of magic I think where you can put him on stage with an audience and you can see that he is having such an amazing time and the audience they they love to watch it it's 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 a beautiful kind of relationship to watch and I um I suppose I'm a writer I mean I have performance skill because I've learnt most of my job on stage but it's always been through having been in a room on my own with some text first um, and I have a background in arts education and my strength, I suppose, is engaging with an audience through participation and activity. And what I am quite good at, I think, is reading the dynamics of, of a particular audience and responding to it. I mean, we can both do both of those things that I've just outlined, but those were, I suppose, our special individual strengths. Now, the shows that we made were two-handers. They were written and performed by us, and they drew on the skills that we had combined as a pair. The shows were made out of poetry and performance and audience interaction, and they were, I suppose, theatre. And as I said earlier, we did the show so many times, so many times, in so many places, with so many different groups of people, and we spent so much time in each other's company on trains and buses and hotels and theatre green rooms that, you know, inevitably we, we came to know each other's psychological and gestural nuances, kind of inside out. And sometimes we could sort of communicate with each other without really needing to say anything. So like if we were doing a show and the show was running quite low on energy or if an audience member was crying or we had someone in who was being uh, disagreeable in some way, we could we could say that to each other with just an eye gesture. We had sort of learned, I suppose, you know, we sort of learned how each other think. But some things some things have started to go a bit wrong or or a bit differently. Things have started to shift, I suppose. Um, Chris had started developing some more solo work, really amazing solo work, and his performance style had developed. I mean, of course it did. That's what happens when you take on a new strain of your practice. And I think as a result of that, Chris became a lot more confident on the stage and a lot more playful and... Um, I suppose one of the side effects of that is that he would maybe talk less to me during the show and maybe look a little less towards me during the show. And sometimes in response to an audience member live, Chris would um, improvise some new small bits of material for, for the show. And these were great. They were always really, really great. The trouble is that, um, as I said, we have different performance abilities I suppose and that as Chris's style developed it it started to feel less like a duet that we were doing together um and a lot more like Chris was doing the show and I just kind of happened to be in the room it wasn't like he was trying to do that it was just a thing that was happening and I think what was going on there was that whilst Chris was was doing this this amazing work I would be standing there and all I could think was why are we not doing this together? And what about what the audience are feeling? Because that's what I'm noticing. And I think probably it started to affect my confidence on stage because I think I used to get my confidence from doing the shows 
because we were doing them as a pair and it really didn't feel like to me we were doing them as a pair anymore. During the show, Chris's performance would go big and I would respond to that by going small. And that really pissed Chris off because he wanted me to be doing the same thing that he was. And what he was doing really pissed me off because I wanted him to be doing it with me. And, you know, we just found ourselves pulling in very different performance directions. So number two, um, you know, this tension that I've just explained to you that we have going on on stage is it's kind of working its way into the writing process or, you know, maybe it fucking began in the writing process. It's really hard to tell. Um, but in the writing process of making a show, we often used one main tool. And that tool was do better, which if you think about it, is kind of a tool of force, really. It's like, it's like the massive wooden mallet that you keep in the toolbox. And we were really proud that our ethos was do better. Um, we were really proud that we were each kind of robust enough in our ego and in our friendship to take being pushed so far by the other one. You know, we each had our own practice separately and we made good work. And so we set out that the reason to work together is to try to make something better than either of us could have made separately. So what we did was we pushed really hard. We pushed the other one really hard. We pushed ourselves really hard. And the actual method of the way that we did that was that we'd sit down in a room together, any room, it's sometimes in a house, sometimes it's in a theatre. We would decide who the piece was for, what it was about. We would come up with maybe a metaphor that we were interested in chasing after. And one of us would write something. Sometimes that was literally like a line. Sometimes it's a paragraph. Sometimes it's a whole piece, whatever. You give it to the other one and the other person would add to it, change it, shift it, make it better. And they would pass it back and the other person would add to it and they would do the same thing again and pass it back. And we would do that over and over and over and frankly, over and over and over again until we felt like we had made something that was bigger somehow than either of us could have made solo. Now, working together creatively with someone else or just working with someone else in any sector, it doesn't necessarily need to be creatively. Obviously, there are loads of different ways of doing that. But quite often, um, the parts of a successful process include the ability for a team to, to synthesise lots of different parts of a creative vision and then find a way to fit those pieces together. And as I said, we spent a lot of time together and like a lot of close working relationships, I think we often believed that we knew or understood the way that the other person was thinking. And it was really fun. It was really fun to work like that. You know, like it sometimes felt very, oh, sounds really silly to say, but it sometimes felt really wild and dramatic and it really blurred the boundaries of, of your own mind. It was kind of like extending yourself. I mean, certainly neither of us could really tell you who wrote or thought up a single bit of anything that we made. But it was um, it was a work culture of force and hard work and pushing. We never discussed our process or our method. We just did it. We just got on with doing it. And I think that that forcefulness started to leak into the delivery of the show on stage. And those two combining factors... 
Those performance styles pulling in different directions and a forceful writing process had accumulated over time. A small series of, at the time almost, undetectable explosions or ruptures that had not been discussed. So that when something massive happened, you know, a real massive fucking car crash, like we didn't have the language, we didn't have the culture or the simple practice of knowing how to find a path through the fuck up. And what became clear is that this idea that we had had for quite a long time, that we knew what the other person was thinking, was not true anymore. And we were now looking at the other, going, what the fuck was your motivation for doing that? Actually, who are you? And maybe the reason why I'm making this partly it's because I've realised I've got no idea anymore how Chris's mind works now. And I, I don't think he knows how mine works either. And I don't want us to go back and remake. I think we've passed that point. But I am curious to learn a little bit of what the inside of Chris's head looks like again. And I'm also... Um, also making this show for, for another reason, quite a big reason to drop in here at this point, I suppose. Um, Chris and I made a show in, in 2010, a different show to the one that I was just telling you about. And this show was about finding yourself in situations that there is no way back from where there has been a fuck up, where there's been a mistake. The show was called The Oh Fuck Moment. It is a show um, about celebrating and learning from our mistakes and at the time that we made it we were very in sync in our thoughts and here is an excerpt from that show let's go back to the office let's go back to profit let's go back to customer service and brand identity and professionalism because these things are holy, apparently. They cannot be sullied by mistakes. And in most of the environments that people work in, if you violate the behaviour they require, even by accident, you're like a priest who broke into the Vatican and took a shit in the Pope's hat. RCVs say things like motivated, efficient, a team player, when they should say things like, do you know what? I get tired and depressed sometimes and I feel like more work would equal death. I once atomised the accounts department with an extra zero. Or sometimes I call people cunts. And we're not saying that any of that is acceptable behaviour, especially the last one, but it is human behaviour. Weirdly, some quirk of our development has convinced us that mistakes are as eradicable as smallpox. We've made a category error and put them in the box of optional things instead of the box of reasons that we're here at all. They don't fit with our idea of how we want to be or, more importantly, how we are wanted to be. They rub dirt on the aesthetic, on neat rows of workstations and spotless walls. On the idea that you can buy someone's time on this planet so completely that someone else can dictate it to the second. And so we punish mistakes. And so making a mistake results in an unnecessary oh fuck moment. I, uh, I, I forgot to back the server up overnight. And that sparks the horror of danger and the fear of death of the shadow of the tiger in the forest. These days, the tiger in the forest is squatting in our inbox. 
Remember the pilots from earlier? The aviation industry's got it right. They don't blame they learn. Yeah, but we don't do what the aviation industry does. We don't have conferences of our great mistakes. We punish them. And that fear of punishment makes us into secret keepers. And so we put up pointless warning signs and never the ones that we should. In case of fire, do not have sex in this lift. Do not use your lanyard as a noose even when jesting. Do not scratch your eczema over the biscuit tin. The CCTV in the toilets is not an invitation to a display of piss athletics. Do not smoke near the accounts marked flammable unless you have been expressly told to do so. Danger high voltage does not recharge your iPhone super quickly. The spillage in the foyer is not an ice rink. Do not hold up cards marking falls out of ten. Please do not stand on office swivel chairs. Just do don't. In the interests of hygiene, please wash your hands, mind the step, keep the fire door shut. Do not run your genitals under the tap that says caution, very hot water. Do not photocopy the stairs. Do not do monkey impressions from the panic bar. In fact, do not even touch the panic bar. Do not even think about touching the panic bar. Do not use social media to give the manager your diagnosis. And do not put your fingers in the water cooler to wind up the piranhas. Above all, do not ignore these warnings. When shooting stray dogs at the abandoned nuclear plant, do not pick up pebbles to take home as souvenirs. They may be contaminated with radioactive material and therefore dangerous to you and your family. This automobile is not designed for certain pastimes. It is not safe to attempt fellatio whilst driving. Impacts sustained at speed during orogenital activity may cause sudden amputation of the penis. These are the warning signs we should have made for the oh fuck moments we had not imagined. Some things we never know until they happen. But second guessing them would mean more sign than planet. Our whole world is, is held together by the construct of competency and we risk assess and data protect and evaluate for error. To confess to a fuck up is like greasing the playground slide or putting a bullet in a gun and handing it to the person who wrote the competency framework. Well, that framework itself is a sign of being afraid. It says, I'm too scared to admit I might let the chaos in. When I listen to that recording now, I think, fucking hell, we were a bit confident, weren't we? And I love that. I love that we were that confident of ourselves that we were basically saying just put your mistakes down guys you know learn from them celebrate them in the show we talk a lot about a range of different types of oh fuck moments there's a man who uses a hockey stick as an anal aid during wanking slips and tears his colon and bleeds to death we talk about chris missing the moment that his father died we talk about a plane crash a real plane crash that really happened and we get two audience members to read the transcript of the actual black box recordings of the plane going down and of course Chris and I we didn't we didn't crash a plane we didn't do anything like that what we did was we made a show about fucking up and then we fucked up ourselves and we did not just put the mistake down and we did not just learn from it and we did not celebrate it. So 
I mean, there is one way of looking at this whereby we are massive hypocrites. I mean, I don't like that. I don't want to look at it like that. But there is one way of looking at this where we're massive hypocrites. I mean, we made that show telling people to wear their shame about fucking up lightly to make their mistakes useful. And I think that is the other part of my motivation for wanting to make this. Like, I want to make it useful in some way. So I decided that for this episode, I was going to talk to Chris, ask him to talk to me, and that we were going to see if we could figure out some things. And I thought this would be quite easy, right? Like, he's a mate. So I set up a Skype meeting and we recorded the conversation on our phones. And as I said, it's just a conversation and Chris is a mate. And this is just a podcast. And I I love and respect Chris, actually. So I wasn't quite sure why I was awake the night before at 1am and 2am and then 3am. I'm going to play you some of the parts of the recordings from Chris and I. We were each in our own houses. Chris was in Manchester and I was in Essex. It was towards the end of, you know, that fun year, 2020. And um, Chris is sitting at his kitchen table and I am sitting at my desk. And I asked Chris how he felt about taking part in this piece. And... um, do you feel do you feel safe in that? I mean yeah. I mean yeah, I absolutely feel safe and safe in uh where we've got to and where it's going. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel safe enough to be participating in this, you know, series of podcasts you're making and trust that ultimately you do have complete editorial control over this conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not. I'm not going to make you sound like. Right? I know. Well, it, I mean, that's it. But that's that's why. I mean, one of the indications of that safety is like being able to participate in conversations like this because I have no, uh, I have no fear in any way about it. <laughs> Sucker. No, of course I. I wouldn't do that. I. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And Chris made the following point, which feels really important to me. Well, the whole point of this is we're not here to hash anything out and work out who was... No. (laughs) Who was right. No. So it's fine. Call me a wanker. No. Well, yeah, no. Don't want to do that. I mean, I think it's important to, like, acknowledge that, like, when you got married a couple of years ago, I, I... was one of the people who did a poem at your wedding yeah you were one of the most important people to be there for me i was honored that you wrote that poem and uh and that's just to reassure anyone who's listening to this who thinks (laughs) who's got that horrible feeling in the pit of their stomach that they might hear or that fascinated feeling that they might hear a kind of live therapy session where we kind of we have to we have to resolve an as yet unresolved problem is probably That's probably not what this is about. I wonder if you've got that um, that sort of fascinated feeling. Um, Because other people's train wrecks are fascinating to us because I think we're looking looking for ourselves in, in, in some way. Well, you know, maybe you don't do that. Maybe you're really great, but that is what I do. And I suspect I'm probably not the only one. So we we spoke for 10 hours. Yeah, 10 hours of recordings and I'm I'm not going to play you all of those because well, you know, 10 hours is is pretty fucking intense. 
And I think it was so long because we were trying to find a language for what happened. And because we were, you know, we were both trying to look after ourselves and each other in that conversation. And doing that work, because it was work, um, it wasn't as easy as I, as I thought it would be. I thought it would be as simple as, hey, look at the mistakes that we each made and that we made together. And like, let's just get over the shame and let's learn to get better at making them. But actually, when it came to doing it, I was like, wow, this feels really uncomfortable. You have to wade through a load of shit. You really do have to wade through a load of shit. But here are some parts of that conversation. We talked about what we didn't do. And in that recorded bit of the oh fuck moment earlier that, that I played you, we talk about the warning signs that we should have made. So Chris and I, we spent some time trying to figure out what our warning signs might have been. We realised that one of the things that maybe we should have done is go... Shall we, uh, shall we treat this as if we were building an aeroplane? Should we treat this like we were constructing a safety-critical machine? And we didn't. We constructed a really unsafe machine, which then we had to destroy, and there was terrible damage. And what we couldn't do was take uh, the shared position that, you know, something's gone wrong here and we need to sort it out. We need to be able to find the language to sort it out. Uh, and we couldn't do it during the process of that going wrong for any of those particular moments. Now, it is possible to identify that something is going wrong. You know, that is definitely a skill uh, that needs to be developed and we we lacked that skill yeah and I think what I what I've learned in in my own relationship to myself is that I just didn't realize uh, how vulnerable that would feel and you know how much safer it would feel to just tell myself that I was right whether or not I was So I guess some of our warning signs, just to, you know, itemise them, are, are as follows. Make a shared language to communicate as you go. There will be problems in the process at some point. How are you going to resolve those? Is what you're doing safe? Is everybody on board? Know that you will feel vulnerable when things go wrong. How are you going to manage that? How are you going to communicate your way through that? There are two sides to everything and maybe you are both right. Consider taking shared responsibility when things go wrong. How are you going to learn from your mistakes? What are you going to do with them? Could they maybe be useful to you in some way? that we are both still absolutely sure in our own version of being right. In that, we both felt that the other person should have come to where we were and conceded their position. And what became clear is that we both held on to our patch of ground. And that refusal to shift ground is admirable, right? That's admirable in some respects, but it was, it was a bit of a problem for being in a partnership. I think that we are living in a time 
of our own rightness. I think everything around us supports that, the technology, the opinion bubbles that we live in. There's loads of splitting. There's loads of dividing everyone into different groups of different opinions and then pointing at the other one. And I think the feeling of being right feels righteous. It feels like a sort of fuel. The trouble is, though, if you do find yourself in a position of an impasse and you do both think that you're right and you do both maintain your position, often there is no meeting in the middle. You're just each each in your own side of the room or each in, in your own bubble. Now, just to give that a visual, because, you know, I am a poet. <laughs> um, I like to think of it as a room. Not a fancy official sort of room. It's just a standard room with white walls and a wooden floor and maybe a table. And there are two people in that room, each on different sides of the room. Maybe there's a white line across the middle. Maybe there's not. And if both people are feeling they are absolutely 150% right and that the other person is wrong, they will have their back resolutely up against the wall. Maybe they're looking at each other challengingly. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just staring at the floor. But in the middle, in between them is a big space. And that space is is empty, completely empty. And it can stay that way for a fucking long time. Sometimes it stays like that forever. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that is fine if you hate that person and you never want to see them again. But maybe even that feels a bit crap. But what if, what if you miss that person? Or if there is something still of value in that partnership or relationship or whatever? Trouble is, is that to do that, and this is what Chris and I found out quite quite palpably in the process of having these conversations to do that you have got to figure out a way to get your back away from the wall you have to figure out how to get your back away from the wall and to to take some steps back into the room towards the middle bit a little and it is not that you have to put your story of being right down but maybe you have to be willing how to Separate a bit of your ego from the insistence that you're right. And if you've ever found yourself in this situation, I mean, maybe you would still are. Maybe you still are. I mean, it's been a fucking weird year. Who knows what next year holds? And I think we've all been feeling big, big tensions in lots of different ways. Um, you know, for some people, that's like an impasse with a friend or a romantic relationship or or a job, you know, where two competing realities are forced to acknowledge each other maybe it's morally or factually or financially and it may well be it may actually well be that the other party is in fact an utter dick and completely wrong but in some cases it may also be that you were both dicks and it might be that there is some useful learning to be had maybe and the one thing that I know and that I have felt very keenly, is that if you keep standing with your back against the wall, it gets very cold. And somehow you're still in it. You're still in that battle between you because you're somehow still feeding it. 
And that feels like a lot of work. And I think we've all got enough on. Here's another clip of um, the conversation between Chris and I, I suppose in our attempt to try and get away from the wall. Having resolved that difference of perspective, that has led us to this place. Uh, what has led us to this place is kind of finding a way to look at that difference and realise that its relationship to our relationship is not as strong as we thought it was. Uh, you know, that it actually... I mean, not that it doesn't matter, but... Uh, of course, like you said some things in the world are right and some are wrong and you know that and this is not about saying right and wrong doesn't matter it's about saying that very personal sense of rightness can exist in a space which you can with sufficient exercise of that muscle of separation uh, you can separate from the other parts of yourself I asked Chris if he had any advice for anyone who might might currently find themselves at an impasse. Well, it's an interesting one. It sort of calls into... I mean, there's an immediate question about whether I'm the right person to give anyone any advice about anything. <laughs> you know, all I can do, and I think that what we try to do and what we both try to do in our work is talk about ourselves in a way that admits our failings and if that's useful for anyone else that's hopeful you know hopefully a good thing uh i don't know all i can do is talk about it from personal experience and say there there isn't a universe in which you know all that stuff that you're thinking about didn't happen you know, you are who you are and where you are because of, of, you know, the accumulation of all those choices and actions. But equally, there is a universe, so you can't erase that, but one thing that is, there is a universe, which is this universe, which in which it is in your power to choose whether to give a shit about that or not. Or to choose which bits of that to give a shit about. So you're not gonna you're not gonna stop thinking about like the terrible shit that you did, which is most likely more terrible in your mind than it is in 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 actual reality. But you are gonna be able to choose the way you think about that. He's right. He is right. We can choose the way we think about that. And my only addition to that is, <laughs> I mean, try and learn from it. I suppose that's what I'm trying to do. Try and learn from it somehow. Try and make it useful if you can. As I said, the, com the having of this conversation with Chris was hard. I, th I think it was hard for him too. 
But also it felt really good to spend some time together, you know, to learn something about how each other think now. Just trying to map some coordinates back together to understand something about each other. And the act of having this conversation made me feel positive, you know, for future change, that maybe we have the potential to not just be two people who made a show about fucking up and then fucked up and then fucked up and not learning. Maybe, just maybe, we have the potential to be two people who made a show about fucking up, then fucked up and learnt from that. Something that has struck me that seems so obvious... <laughs> And yet felt so important and hard, it felt hard, is that we had to remember how to be how to be vulnerable in front of each other. And I think that's because when you feel right and when you're confronted in your reality of that rightness, your instinct is just to armor the fuck up. But it turns out if you want to take a few steps back into the room, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and in the name of that Chris and I thought we would set ourselves a task that made us feel vulnerable so we decided to make something together a piece of writing it's a it's a poem actually we set ourselves the task of trying to write a poem that tried to catch something about the learning of our mistakes now this is the first thing that we'd written together in like over six years and I don't think we could have done it sooner than exactly now. And I wonder if maybe the vulnerability of 2020 has made that possible in some way. Now, in writing this poem, we actually had to remember how we wrote together. And that used to be something that was unconscious. And we weren't quite sure how to go about it, to be honest. Um, but we knew that we could not go about it using the same tools that we did before. We knew that the tool a force was not going to serve us very well at this particular moment. So we decided on an image, which is circus performers, and we decided who it's for. It's it's for you, and I suppose it's for us as well, really. And we decided to make that, that we were not going to be in the room together, that we were going to turn off our cameras and that we were going to end the Skype call so that there wasn't that kind of co-reading of the other's microfacial expressions and things like that and we decided we decided to be gentle which felt quite strange to us I think so we wrote it by email and we passed it back and forth back and forth and back and forth um here is that poem it was like two acrobats we said who each night did the same trick, stepped out into air to hold the other's weight above a floor, not much more than dust. On the edge of my platform each evening, I watch you step out into the air. And suddenly, you're hanging from the bar by the backs of your knees, arms out for me. I know the precision of the push that sent you towards me. And there's a moment that comes when you're suspended in touching distance before gravity reclaims you. And I step, reach, my hands on your forearms, your hands on my forearms, such symmetry, such arc. But each night a little slip, the crack of a wrist, a right angle click 
while we finish the trick. And after the curtain call, in the corridor, we leave the mistake to hang in space. And the moment has been edging us, inching each night. The way my hand twists and your left knee shifts. Such small things that break us. And now finally, we're falling. Now, we realise that that poem sounds like it ends in a sad place. But it felt really good to make it. It felt really good to write together. It felt healthy. And when we both finished it, we walked away. We were not mute with rage. There wasn't any force. It was it was kind of fun. It felt it, it, it felt quite light. And do you know what felt brilliant? It was being away from the wall. It felt, I think, a little bit like we were each a bit more free. Chris and I thought we would try and come up with a slogan, <laughs> the slogan of all things for learning from your mistakes. And the best that we could come up with was um, was stop, check and learn. Here is Chris and I talking about that. I can see that you want to piss yourself laughing. What did you want to piss yourself laughing? I was not. I was just imagining the circumstances <laughs> in which stop, check, well, like what stop, check and learn will be a good <laughs> slogan for. And just thinking, stop checking. Yeah, no, I was just thinking you were right. It is one of those horrible, like, green cross code style. It is phrases, isn't it? Stop checking. I don't. I'm not sure that's how the airline industry put it. I bet, knowing your mind, you were thinking about something like a child has got shit on their leg. (laughs) 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 Stop. Check. Have you wiped your ass properly? Learn how to do it properly. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very stop. Stop. <laughs> are, you, are you covered in shit? Check. Yes, you are covered in shit. Think about what's just happened. What was the point you got absolutely covered in shit? Maybe you could learn not to do that again. I wasn't thinking that. There is a part of the script of the OFAT moment that I um, I still know off by heart even though it was it was written to be in Chris's voice, it was Chris's lines. And I think of it very often. I think of it very often, actually. And I think I think of it that often because despite our fucking up, there are still some things that past us wrote that, that still feel true. Why do we get so ashamed? You might feel like it ruins a run of perfect performances, but hey, that was going to end anyway. It really was. And whether you piss up a spreadsheet or fail to avoid an iceberg just depends on where life's put you when it is finally, unavoidably, your turn. And it's not that there's no difference between getting it wrong and getting it right. It's just that fucking up properly humanly fucking up is still a lurch in the right general direction some oh fuck moments are uncontrolled explosions they end lives or they wreck lives we're not saying that's okay but let's take them out of the cabinet Resort them, keep them in the file marked live, 
let's learn the lessons people died to teach us. And those other oh fuck moments, the evolutionary reactions when we break some arbitrary framework or reveal our humanity in an office cock-up, well, our reaction to those comes from some time in our past that we haven't out-evolved and we probably never will. So let's be glad that they're part of us. Let's not make them scared of ourselves or each other because we're not perfect beings who fuck up. Actually, we're fuck-ups who very occasionally achieve perfection. Okay. Okay? Yep. Good. All good. Well, well I hope, that, hope this works. Me too. <laughs> it will How are you doing? I'm fine. It will be fine if, if it doesn't work, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you would like to do a thing, there's a there's a short bit of activity here. Um, so I thought, yeah, so this happened to us. But the reason that we made it really is because we know it's happened to others too. Um, so that is why I added in this, this bit. Um, and it's just here if you would like it. So all you need to do this is a piece of paper and something to write with. So hopefully you've got those. Now... All you need to do is I want you to think of a situation where you have reached an impasse with someone, but that person or job or whatever it is, is still important to you and you've not quite been able to let it go. Now, in writing, and this does not need to be very long, I want you to to respond to the following. Maybe maybe write down each of the words and respond to it in your own time. But the first one is who? Who was it? When? What happened? Next is your story. You know, what is your story about this? And then next, this is the hard one often. What's theirs? Next is any reflections? And finally... And what now? <laughs>